Today on The Regimen, a drug largely discussed in the media recently, ketamine. Stay tuned to find out if ketamine is the next big thing in mental health care or just another recreational substance. Hi, pharmacists and friends. Today is Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Welcome to the regimen where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues. Listen in to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Cassie Capazza, and I'm a final year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bratberg. Howdy, and I'm Jeff Bratberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice and clinical research at the URI College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. As a reminder to our guests by the hosts and guests, do not represent the opinions of the United States government, the Rhode Island Department of Health, the University of Rhode Island, nor the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Today, we'll be talking about ketamine, a medication clinically used for depression, agitation, and surgical anesthesia. While ketamine is known as a safe medication, too much of it can cause heart and lung problems, just like many other medications and substances taken in larger quantities. We have a special guest who is one of my professors and preceptors, Dr. Rob Dufresne. It's great to have uh, Dr. Dufresne back with us again. Our most popular podcast was on psychedelics, and uh, he hosted there, and he's agreed to come back. Dr. Dufresne was my Rob was my my mentor when I was first hired, and uh, we're happy to have him here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Dr. Bratberg. Uh, yeah, that was a while ago when you started. Uh, anyhow, I am a, I'll start off, I always have trouble talking about myself. What I am now is professor of pharmacy at University of Rhode Island, and I am a uh, clinical pharmacy specialist in psychiatry at the Providence VA. That's where my clinical practice is and where I have my clerkship students. Um, background includes my pharmacy degree, master's, a couple of PhDs, one in psychology, one in pharmacy, and I'm board certified psychiatric pharmacist. Uh, more important part of that is though that I'm uh, currently, I am I have my own outpatient practice at the VA and am faced with some of the problems we'll be talking about today. So when people listening run a simple Google search for ketamine, you get results that mainly bring up a Friends star, the popular show Friends, Matthew Perry's death. His cause of death was actually ruled to be acute effects of ketamine, and hence why we're talking about it today. It was reported after dying he was found to have an amount of ketamine in his system higher than he could have received with clinical treatment, insinuating that he obtained it another way than what his prescription records revealed because he was taking prescription ketamine. He was also being treated for other substance use disorders and had buprenorphine or suboxone in his system, likely for opioid use disorder treatment. And it's important to our listeners who maybe find this information on their own, that buprenorphine actually prevents and protects people from overdose and death and was not implicated in the death. It was just found it's not a cause of, of death. Still, when popular public figures, even those like Mr. Perry, who actually just wrote a book about his behavioral health diagnoses, and they have other drugs and medications and substances in their system, speculation runs wild. So Cassie, Rob, and I will help give you some context as what ketamine is actually used for, what it's indicated for, and how people are accessing it. So first to get started, I'd like to just give a little bit of background about ketamine. 
Um, it's a Drug Enforcement Administration or DEA Schedule Three controlled substance, and it's FDA labeled to be used as an anesthetic for surgical procedures. It's been studied for a wide range of mental health disorders, for example, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder in clinical practice and in research studies. However, people can find it in other settings like infusion sites, ketamine clinics, at-home ketamine, mail-order ketamine, or illicit ketamine. In fact, I found several places here in Rhode Island which offered free consultations for ketamine infusion therapy to treat mental health conditions, including depression, anxiety, and other ones. Dr. Dufresne, what do you know about how easy it is to access ketamine in Rhode Island, and do any of your patients utilize these access points? As far as number of access points, I don't know. I think that would be an interesting public health project, something that could student project actually to find out. But I, there's two different ways to get ketamine. One is underutilized. It's just not being accepted and prescribed the way I would expect in traditional psychiatry. Uh, I know that the, uh, I've talked to colleagues. I, there's not a lot of use of it. I've never prescribed it myself. We don't. We would have to send people up to Boston. They would have had to fail at least four treatments, uh, including some augmenting type treatments for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, when I think of my treatment-resistant patients, like I have one now, the whole concept of her going uh, up to the Boston VA to get the special treatment and everything that's involved, I don't see her doing it. It's the same problem you get with other uh, treatment-resistant type treatments like, like electroshock or uh, TMS. If you, for example, with, tri, uh, with the transcranial magnetic stimulation, if people have the energy to go every day for, you know, for you know, a week and a, uh, a month and a half, they're usually not treatment resistant depressed, like, as far as I'm concerned. And so that's a problem. And when I look at it, there's, as I was mentioning, uh, I have two parts here in how I look at this. There's the me that's a professor and reading this literature and saying, here we have this drug and this treatment that's approved in a convenient form that you can give, you can get immediate results from. And some people, even an hour in some cases, it's not the usual, but it happens, uh, including treatment resistant patients. It's the dream drug that they've been waiting for for depression. Always have they been trying to get the drug that works quicker right away and people who didn't respond to anything else. So thinking this is something that everyone should be prescribing. As a clinician, you're concerned about, for example, the dissociative effects, which about 75% of people have that could be frightening to some patients. And you're looking at something that has to be given under a REMS procedure, which is quite uh, involved and intense and time consuming. And not to mention scary for the patient, right? And there's all these. So I, I think it's a valuable thing, but I do get nervous that it's getting used kind of in a wild west kind of way in a lot of places. Some places don't even have, you know, these need to have psych people there. Sometimes they don't. And whenever something gets used a lot and in all different ways, uh, my old axiom is you get danger with uh, medication whenever you start using it like candy. There were drugs that were used in the 60s that were fine when they were used judiciously, but once everyone started using them, it became a big problem and then using them off-label and not in the right for the right uses. That's where I get a little nervous with ketamine. 
Yeah, I, I like your analogies about, you know, use like candy in Wild West. And, you know, why I always ask like, well, why is this being marketed in outside the medical system or sort of in the gray area of the medical system? One thing for our listeners, just so we are all on the same page, you mentioned three quarters of people have dissociative effects. Can you just explain what that is like in layperson terms? Yeah, it's one of the harder things to it's explain. It's not a traditional psychedelic reaction. Uh the person kind of feel cut off from reality and people around them. The fancy words, derealization, depersonalization, that things are unreal, that maybe they're not real. It's a very uncomfortable feeling and they and a feeling of being cut off and out of it, as opposed to a psychedelic reaction, which is usually sort of being connected to everything. And some people can go far enough, especially in higher dosages where they can have full-on psychosis and lose touch with reality. Uh, I always say you know, ketamine wasn't the first drug I would expect to be used. I would have expected the psychedelics to be used first. But I think because this has been a drug used in medicine uh, since the 1950s, I think it was mostly used in veterinary use back then. Uh, but since it's a drug that's been accepted, you can give it off-label now. They started, they started giving it off-label for depression. Uh, it's got more... I don't know, mainstream cred in the psychedelics. But it's it can be very dangerous if not used correctly. Uh, and again, because of that, we really are careful. Uh, again, four failed antidepressant trials just to refer someone up to Boston to get this in the VA system. Now, that's not unusual. Uh, for example, Providence does transcranial magnetic stimulation. A lot of places don't. The Wood River VA does electroconvulsive therapy. We'll send people up there when they need shock therapy. It's not unusual to have specialized treatments be given at some places only. Uh, but it's just kind of amazing. There's very few referrals. And it, I'm thinking it might be a little bit too restrictive. And if you can't, you know, say you're a 25-year-old patient and you're, you know, struggling with depression and you know, you're hearing all this stuff on the media and you're like, well, can you do that for me? Can you give me that? Can you give me psilocybin? It's like, well, no, this is what we'd have to do. And after four drugs and after waiting weeks and weeks to see if you respond and, you know, having to wait to get to the higher dose of the antidepressant you're on, if you don't do well there and after a bunch of those, then maybe we can send you there. You could see where they would want to end around that system and get it right away. I mean, what, what would you want right away or waiting months and months and months and trying other agents. Yeah. Can you, it sounds like, you know, this is always, you know, is it opportunism or is it patient care? And maybe it's a little of both. Um, you said, said several times treatment resistant depression. Again, can you just like give us a, a, for instance of what that is? The nasty, I don't know if it's a secret, but the nasty fact of treating depression, you do have a number of people who re respond or even go into remission. Uh, but there's a substantial number, you know, there's all different estimates, but you're talking 40% in some studies that do not have a good treatment remission type response to their antidepressant. They still are left with some symptoms. Maybe they don't get better at all. Uh, and you, they've gone through everything. Uh, the STAR-D trial was a, still one of the better, I think, one of the better studies of antidepressants and treatment-resistant patients. Uh, and in the STAR-D trial, it clearly shows that as you give 
you know, the first treatment, then you randomly would give them to the second treatment arm. They get different treatments, third treatment arm. The only thing that really mattered wasn't the treatment, but what level of treatment. But by the time they got to the fourth treatment, hardly any were responding. And that makes a lot of sense because a lot of the treatments we use have very similar mechanisms of action. Uh, it's not a surprise that you're, you know, if you're using a hammer to do a job and it doesn't work and you keep using the hammer, it's not a surprise when it doesn't work. It's a major problem. And I, you know, I have a few patients where you're sitting there like you, you know, it's not optimal. You got them to what you seem to be the best you can do with what's available. And we need new treatments. So we need new treatments that aren't, uh, aren't a shock to the patient. <laughs> Bad pun. But, you know, if you're offering ECT to someone, that's not, you know, electroconvulsive therapy is frightening to a lot of people. Even the TMS, even though it's just magnets, you know, being electromagnets, it's a pretty scary procedure. So uh, having something else that we can use that works, that's not as scary as these alternatives and that are more readily, I mean, giving people ketamine is a whole lot easier than what you have to do to give them ECT. I just, it's it's kind of a weird thing. I kind of understand why it's not being used more, but it, from the professor part of my brain, I can't understand it. Uh, I think it will. I think people are going to have to get used to it. And especially in treatment-resistant patients, uh, there's very few options. But it's, we're not there yet. In my research, when I was just investigating, I found that uh, the FDA-approved formulations were IV ketamine and then the intranasal S-ketamine. But I know that there are other formulations that exist, like sublingual tablets and lozenges. And before you mentioned how um, you often have to refer out for patients if they are using ketamine, I was wondering which formulations of ketamine are available at VA, VA locations, and if so, which formulations are available? Both the uh, I, the infusion and the S-ketamine. I have a preference for S-ketamine because it's non-invasive and it's FDA approved and tested and people are comfortable with it. The reason for referring out, I think, is when you do that, you're talking about a specialized, you have to give it through a REMS program. You're going to be watching them at least a couple hours. You're being, it's, there's a lot of time and it's a different kind of procedure. It's not the same old, same old. And I think that is limiting its adoption. Uh, I think it would be great if it was used in more places and more readily available. But even if it is, uh, so I'm talking to someone, everyone's, if you could think about someone who's 20, but let's talk about someone who's 50 and just heard about uh, Matt Perry dying of ketamine overdose. Are they going to be uh, excited about having that in their body? Probably not. So there's a lot of perception problems, both with clinicians, but in pa and patients as well. And we have to get by that and over that for it to be used. Right. So um, there's a lot of different reasons for why there could be such few referrals, like lack of patient requests, provider in unfamiliarity, limited data, and limited number of patients who qualify. Um, I think that building rapport with patients so that they trust you is really important. So they give you the most accurate information when treating them. But there can definitely be a fine line, and it's naturally very patient dependent. Do you assess patients if they use ketamine and ask for their questions, like if it's prescription or obtained in other ways? I ask them about all medications and substances they can be using. Uh, it, I haven't had someone come in with it, that I know of that has had prescription ketamine, which is unfortunate. Uh, 
like I said, it's more common that patients, especially the younger patients, are experimenting with psychedelics, including microdosing, and they'll tell me about that. So I'm obviously asking about this, just often doesn't come up. Uh, and when you when I'm doing this, I have to, there's a lot of things you have to watch that are pitfalls of using ketamine. Uh, are they substance using, are they alcoholics? You know, I'm going to be hesitant to use that and not, you know, alcoholic. You know, what else could they be using? What else could be a problem? I have patients that have comorbidities. You were asking about specific patients. If I have someone who has severe PTSD and is during the day is having uh, intrusive thoughts, which is many ways it's some where they blank out, they're not there, they slip in and out of this. And am I going to give them ketamine where they could do that and have a, a negative experience? Maybe not. Uh, there's a lot of specifics that depend on what the, which patients you're treating and what the need is. Right now, I'd have to say we're in the middle. I think we're overly cautious, but it's not something that should be used all the time commonly, and especially till we get experience with it. That's a big problem. Uh, how do you get comfortable with using a treatment? You get experience with it. What makes you uncomfortable about using it? You don't have experience. You have to dip in. And if there's a lot of roadblocks in the way, then people aren't going to get the experience. And I just like to transition into talking about the escadamine nasal spray, uh, brand name Spravato again. Um, it's likely that many of our listeners have used nasal medications for allergy symptoms, which are purchased over the counter or OTC. And these are safe and effective at reversing allergies, but aren't considered life-saving. Another intranasal medication called naloxone, brand name Narcan, is available over the counter and via pharmacists and community access programs reversing opioid overdose anywhere to anyone. Prescription esketamine administration is completely different, though. Spravato, the brand name, can only be, be given under medical supervision in an office setting and requires observation for two hours after the treatment. It's really time intensive with two administrations per week for the first four weeks of treatment. I also want to mention the Spravato REMS, which is a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. This is for adverse effects like sedation and dissociation, which is one of the reasons for medical supervision requirements. Dissociation, which we touched on before, is usually described as a person being less aware of their surroundings and feeling detached from their body temporarily. Essentially, the provider needs to be certified by Spravato REMS and the patient needs to be enrolled in Spravato REMS. If Narcan is a nasal spray available in pharmacies and over-the-counter, as well as other over-the-counter nasal sprays, then why does Spravato have these more intense requirements? That's a good question, Cassie, but these two in many ways are apples and oranges. You know, Narcan is something that you need to use immediately that's life-saving, that I can't think of a downside. Uh, Jeff's Dr. Prapper is a public health expert, maybe he can, but I can't see any. Uh, I think the only thing I could even scratch my brain come up with is precipitating withdrawal on a person dependent on opioids. Esketamine, uh, if used incorrectly, is can be a very dangerous drug. As it is, I think it's being used in some places in big cities in ways that I'm not comfortable with. I'm always concerned that people are, are going to go into a clinic or a hospital, have a bag of ketamine infused, and people walk away and aren't monitoring them. So uh, I think they're very different. I mean, Narcan is very little risk that I can think of. And esketamine, there are risks for it to be used. Uh, again, when you use drugs like candy, you run into trouble. Uh, also, whenever a, a, drug, a treatment is new, uh, people you know, get 
it's a honeymoon period. Everyone wants to use it. People are, you know, really excited to. Uh, there can be some errors, mistakes, and overestimation of how it, well it works. My first job was at a research center doing clinical research, and I, I copied something out of a book, a, a, say, uh, a saying by Sir William Osler, we should use new remedies quickly while they're still efficacious. And I think we're in that phase with esketamine. So yeah, let's be optimistic, but I'm also skeptical, and I want to make sure that uh, we're looking at everything we are, the efficacy, the safety, and we're using good practice. Yeah, you can't underestimate the role of the medication expert, the pharmacist, the psych clinical specialist in, in all of these things, both to, you know, enhance the use of, of these new meds when we have good data and to decrease their use for the patient you talked about who had PTSD. I know that, you know, again, it may be good or bad that because of its use in and out of the medical um, system, it's used for all kinds of things. We actually found, Cassie and I found a um, a report using ketamine for the mental health consequences of long COVID, which is, you know, a whole other conversation, you know, right. was a case report, but where would you like to see more data, right? You talked about, you know, you, you, your patients are experimenting with psychedelics. I think we need more data there. Um, and that's coming, it's being studied, it's being invested in, do we need more investment into ketamine therapy or into its safety? Where would, what would you like to see? Well, going backwards, right now we're at a point where we need lots and lots of regular use data where we find things out that we don't even know what we're looking for. And that's the next step with this. With this, and the whole thing you mentioned, I mentioned PTSD, but when we don't even know, is it a problem? Uh, MDMA is a very useful treatment uh, in some patients with PTSD with psychotherapy. So we're not even sure on that. Some common things, though, uh, the requirement, if you look carefully, they want people to be on antidepressant when they get esketamine. Which antidepressant? Do we know? Have they studied its effects with different antidepressants? They're not all alike. Just even in terms of isoenzyme effects, there are going to be differences. Uh, they have different neurotransmitter uh, effects. We're not even sure what what in, which antidepressants are best, which are bad. That's one. Uh, another big one is how long there are people that uh, get better within an hour or two of administration, but there's not a good grasp, I think, of percentages. How long? How many people get better within an hour? How many people, how long do pe does it last in most people? There's anything from two weeks to forever, which I don't believe, but I'm skeptical. Uh, we don't know a lot about that either. Uh, you have treatments already, like electroshock works right away and, and in most people. My question always is, is how long is this going to work for? Well, that's a big one, I think, with esketamine. Uh, a nice thing about it, though, is, you know, it's not so invasive, especially the nasal delivery dose form, that it can't be used. But right now, they're talking about using it in patients on antidepressant, which one? Who knows? Like I said, I'd like to see more on that. But uh, they'll be, uh, they'll use it a couple of doses a week in the first month and then a dose, then one dose per week. And then after that, there's not even an agreement as to how often it should be. We don't know that. And a lot of that stuff is going to come in with everyday usage. 
and people just aren't comfortable using it every day right now. That's the thing. You need a special setup. I mean, you get allergy shots. If you've ever gone through that, they don't give you the allergy shot and send you on your way. Uh, and there are drugs like in psych, there, there's a there's a depot olanzapine, hardly ever used again, because they have to stick around for a few hours and be monitored afterwards. I, I think that's a factor that we really underestimate uh, and why it's not being adopted. And I think there's just, uh, and I think perceptions are important. Again, the Matt Perry was a good thing to bring up. I mean, we've got to erase the idea uh, that these drugs are going to be dangerous and that they're party drugs. Uh, why don't we use heroin in pain in the United States? It, they do in England. In the United States, it's perceived as this nasty, dangerous drug. You could walk up to someone and say, we're giving you morphine for your severe pain. You'd be, thank you very much. A lot of other people would be like, get away with, you said, you know, diacetyl morphine or heroin. They'd be panicked. I think we're still at that stage. Uh, anyway, there's a lot I want to know. And I'm really excited, though, about the quick action. And some there's a couple of studies out there I'm just going through now where it, it does seem very promising in suicidal patients. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think we all are invested in helping patients, but I, I think pers we, we were just teaching in our uh, elective this week about you got to do what the patient wants, right? You got to figure out what they want, and if if clinicians aren't aware of this data and are not giving them what they want, even considering all these intensive things, and maybe we can remove some of the safety things. I mean, I think people go, you said it several times. If you get one dose, you feel better, but we don't really know what the antidepressant like under what conditions, and then you talk about electroconvulsive therapy, which has a continuously bad rap, right? But you said it works immediately almost all the time. And we know that from well-done studies. So it's sort of, it's hard for the science to catch up to the use. And I think that's, you know, that's that's where we're at with that. And sadly, it's, you know, perception doesn't always change with facts. Uh, sometimes perception just keeps going on its own. And that's it's like- it's like Cassie and I talking about uh, tart cherry juice for uh, people to, for Gen Zers to help them sleep, which just public service announcement. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, there's. it's always amazing to see what people are doing on their own. One of the things, though, that uh, for this talk today, I tried to look at some more on the street, regular kinds of discussions of this, like I said, like on YouTube. Uh, and there really is getting to be, I'm wondering how many patients I've had that just stopped coming to clinic because they decided to do this and they wanted the non-traditional treatments, some of which are very good. And they're going to often get less good care, then it's going to be more dangerous to go off the, for them to go off the grid. And I don't know what we can do to change perception and use these drugs more often. Uh, I also think, not to switch over, but the new research that's showing psychedelics can be very useful. These are all good, but we have to change our way of thinking about this. Uh, and an old, I don't know, old Rob, a clinician, when I have a, a brittle treatment-resistant patient who's had some very difficult periods, you get you do get nervous no matter how much you know. 
for some of these agents, there is that little you know, hair standing up on the back of your head that maybe they could have a dissociative reaction, uh, have a complete psychotic break. You're concerned about that. And it may be over in not too long a time, but it could affect the person in their perception of treatment for quite some time. Yeah, I agree that more data supporting would be very helpful and that patient safety is the number one consideration that should be priority here. In the FDA drug information guide online, there's different major categories of adverse effect listed both for the infusion therapy and the nasal spray. So in the package insert for Swervato, the most common adverse effects were nausea, increased blood pressure, dizziness, headache, reduced sense of touch, sedation, anxiety, and dissociation. And each of these, which occurred in at least one of 10 of the patients when taken in addition to an antidepressant, and occurred more commonly than when taking antidepressants alone or a antidepressant alone. Ketamine infusion side effects reported in the Ketolar package insert included increased blood pressure and heart rate, seizure-like movements, nausea and vomiting, decreased blood pressure and heart rate um, were also occurring in some of the patients. So some similarities between the two formulations. Another surprising thing that I found in my ketamine search was a side effect that caught me by surprise and I had never heard of it being associated with ketamine. It was mentioned in several sources. It was irreversible urinary tract damage. It was coined ketamine bladder syndrome. It's associated with UTI-related symptoms like urinary frequency and pain. Have you seen any of this occur? And if the VA added ketamine to its for formulary, what side effects would you be most concerned with? What I would be most concerned with is the dissociative reactions. I know there's talk about like the bladder syndrome and a lot of urology journals spend quite, you know, there's several publications on this. Those are usually in patients who are abusing the drug on the street and using a lot of it. Uh, I don't think that's a significant problem. Some of the nuisance side effects like dizziness and nausea can be quite common. They have over 25% in studies, but I don't see that stopping the drug from being used. It's the dissociation. Dissociation the dissociative state is usually unpleasant and scary for people. And it's hard to get that from reading the words uh, on the screen. It's just, it's not the same kind of thing. They keep, they keep saying it's psychedelic. It's not the same kind of experience. And it can be very frightening. And if someone goes psychotic on it, that's going to be a major problem. You know, suppose someone, you know, gets psychotic and they're on a drip and they start ripping out the IV. So, that those that is what I would be concerned about, but again, very different using it medically from using from street use. Uh, I mean, you can take a couple ibuprofen, you're going to be fine. What happens if you take twenty or thirty a day and start popping them? I don't know, chocolate covered ibuprofen. That's going to cause you some serious problems. It's I'm very concerned with the under the under the counter use here and with the uh the street use of it without medical supervision uh, yeah definitely you know the the pharmacy you know the the first pharmacist said the dose is the poison right so um yep. i know that i know that colloquially we've seen online where people say well the s-ketamine is such a lower dose than the infusion and then the prescribed infusion dose is much less than what they can get from you know more black market, you know, illicit sort of sources in terms of what the dose is. And we need to know more data about this. So it, we've talked a lot about side effects. We've talked about efficacy, what patients think, where we can get it. 
uh rob what do you what is the regimen for ketamine is it a emerging new class of behavioral pharmacotherapy a drug with dangerous side effects if used improperly or maybe it could be both it's both i mean we're you know, we're talking about a treatment again for years for decades i've been in this field since the earth cooled it feels sometimes but anyway uh, and the thing that everyone is always looking for, every drug company, everyone wants a faster acting antidepressant and one that will work in treatment resistant patients. And now we're getting them, uh, apparently, and people are terrified to use it. It's, it's fascinating. But there's just a huge difference for how we use these drugs medically. They work by different mechanisms. With uh, ketamine, you're talking about a drug that's working. Uh, in the glutamergic system in a very direct effect. I want to see drugs that work by a different mechanism because to me, maybe even I'd like to think that when you're using something with a different mechanism, you got a good chance of getting someone better who hasn't gotten better before. Uh, and there are a few, but not very many, and this is one of them. So I think it is going to be adopted slowly but surely. We'll get used to it. You know, 10 years from now, you know, people in Cassie's generation are going to look back and think of how silly we were for being afraid of using it. I mean, we use potent medications all the time that if they're not handled just right, are, it's going to be a problem. This is just another one. Uh, and But there are some, I mean, I have to put a little caution out there in terms of use. Uh, how often do you see lyothyronine, T3, used as an add-on in treatment-resistant depression? It has been shown oh, since this Jaffe study, I think that was in the late 80s, uh, that adding T3 uh, to an antidepressant and a treatment-resistant patients can result in a strong therapeutic effect, and which can be life-saving in this kind of patient that's failed several antidepressant drugs. Uh, the first study was uh, compared to lithium uh, and placebo as an add-on, and it was right up there with lithium. We use lithium all the time. T3 at small dosages, 25 mics, or maybe 50 max, very effective. I can't, I think I've seen it used twice at the VA. I got calls each time, like, why are they doing this? What's wrong? Isn't this sketchy? And I'm like, no, this is very smart. I've had there's conference talks I've given. I always get that question. When I give this talk uh, and some very stellar and experienced people. I ask them that question and no one ever comes up with a good answer. Why don't we use T3? I think we're in danger at some point. We'll be like, why don't we ever use esketamine? It's going to be one of those. And drugs that involve a lot of preparation and potential for some dramatic side effects, you can see where that would happen. So I don't know, I'd like to think we're gonna adopt it and we're gonna be working with a lot of different treatments we haven't looked at before. Uh, there's a lot of excitement too. There's a lot of smart people, med chemists that's looking at drugs that can increase neuroplasticity. This is one of these drugs that increases neuroplasticity, uh, gets people to solve problems in life, see things in different ways, blast them out of their old way of behaving that maybe you can do that without the negative effects, without dissociative effects uh, with ketamine or without the hallucinations with psychedelics. And that's another really promising uh, pathway I think we're going to go down. So I, the, I'd like to think we're going to change and adopt these things and find even better treatments. But I, I have to say I'm 
I've seen it where good treatments aren't used and that concerns me. This has been a great discussion about ketamine today. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Dufresne, for joining us and giving us some of your great expertise and insight throughout the discussion. Thank you. You're quite welcome. It's wonderful to be here. We have a social media account on all the services here at PharmD Pub Health. That's pharmas and pharmacists, P-H-A-R-M-D Pub Health. That's on Instagram. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Turn on post notifications so you never miss an episode. That's by smashing the subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much.